Is there anyone here tonight who has not been here for the last three weeks, so was not part of this uh, hindrance series? First time. Okay. Were you aware that this series was going on, or did you just drop in for Thursday? Okay. So it's a regular Thursday night, except there's been a theme. This is the fourth, uh, fifth, five weeks in a row dealing with hindrances. So let me just ask this, for those of you who are coming for the first time, or is there anyone here who is not familiar or hasn't heard, doesn't know what the hindrances are, just hasn't been exposed to them? Okay. So I'll just do a quick recap. It'll just be very short because I want to get into the back to where we were. But first let me just ask if there are any um, general questions about meditation practice or just general kind of Dharma questions. So um, we'll just do a quick recap then. Um, I hope there'll be a lot of discussion. It seemed like last week it was starting to open up to more discussion. And I'm prepared to just talk the whole time, but it's better. I think it's nice if, if we have more discussion. So we've been talking about the, the hindrances. There's a, it's a, there's a list of five, uh, I'd say, five mental states or five energies or five qualities that are called the hindrances. And this particular list is really one of the, I think, one of the very important lists because these particular five qualities, they're areas uh, or of, of our experience where, where we really tend to get caught so we single out this group called the hindrances. The Buddha talked about them a lot, many, many different times. So briefly what they are is, the first is um, it's desire. And it's not so, in any of these hindrances, it's not so much uh, for example, with desire, it's not so much a problem. A lot of the time, you know, we have a desire for something. Maybe you're standing out there and you see the book, Gil's book that's out there, and so you just thought, oh, that would be nice. And You could say that's a desire for the book, but it's not a big deal. It's not a problem. Maybe you have a desire to want to meditate or, you know, just there's a lot of things that would go, fall into the category of desire, but yeah, it's not a problem. It's when... They get it's either the particular quality of the desire or the intensity or the strength of it is such that we're no longer free when it's arising. When it's driving us, that's when it gets to be an issue. So we want to learn, first of all, to recognize it and then hopefully find various ways to start to work. With that, so that's the first one, desire, and we talked about that some last few weeks ago. And the second is really is the opposite of desire. It's desire. You know, we want to hold, we want to hold on to things, get things, bring them to us. The opposite of that is we want to push things away. It's aversion. So of course, the desire is for when the pleasant experiences come. The aversion then for the unpleasant. Once again. The problem is not in the way we're talking about it isn't with the unpleasantness itself. Okay. But it's when the, the aversion kicks into the unpleasantness uh, to the point where we can't be free with it, where it's once again driving us. So we're in both of these, the, the wanting, the desire, and the aversion when they get strong enough or when we're hooked, we're just acting out of the, the habitual patterns or the conditioning of our mind, right? And you can all probably, we can all think of times when there have been situations where we just get caught. Maybe somebody, I was telling a story a few weeks ago that um, you know I've been in a relationship with someone for, Eight and a half years, and you know, when she says the certain things, 
I tend to react, right? So if I'm just in reaction, I'm, I'm, I'm not even sometimes aware. It's just a reaction. So in the, that moment, uh, it's just acting out of my conditioning. It's like you turn on a machine and the machine just runs its course. And so in those times, then, um, we are more liable to think or speak and act in ways that cause more suffering or more pain for ourselves and for others. And it tends to strengthen the conditioning of the mind to keep working in that way. So the next time, it's like a habit. Every time we fall into a habit, it strengthens the habit a little bit. So when we start to work with these things a little, uh, you know, it's like changing a habit. In the beginning, it's not so easy. We have to work and work and really hard. But with time, uh, it can get easier because we're changing the conditioning in the mind. And the ultimate idea is to somehow even find a way to be free from the conditioning altogether. That's the real liberation the Buddha was talking about. So I'm just giving the quick. This is, this is what we've been talking about in, in some detail. So that's the first is this desiring, the second is the aversion. Uh, we've been on the aversion so far. We haven't made it to the other three yet. And uh, <laughs> so we'll see tonight. I, I, we'll still pick up back on the aversion. We'll see how it goes, and then we might move over. The, the next one, then, is um, restlessness. Right? That's pretty straightforward. We're not restlessness. That's all I'll say on that. And then the fourth, which is kind of the opposite of the restlessness, which is called sloth and torpor. And that's when there's just a real dullness of the mind. So if you've ever sat in meditation and, you know, you're about to fall asleep and you just couldn't, no matter how much you tried, you know, the mind just didn't have a sharpness or a crispness. Sometimes it's described as having just a thick blanket over the awareness or the consciousness. So sloth and torpor. We're going to talk more about those. And then the fifth one is doubt. And hopefully we'll have time. Next week's the last of this five series, but I hope we'll have plenty of time for that one. Um, So I'm curious if anyone... Well, you don't have to have been here last time, even if it's, you know, you're just coming into the series, but, or if you've been here and if anything came up, you know, we had to stop. I lost track of the time. We just abruptly stopped. I thought there was some good conversation going. Anything up for anyone around any of these topics? Well, maybe some things will come up. I can keep uh, stirring up the, stirring it up a little bit. Um, you know, none of these are hindrances in and of themselves. There's no experience in and of itself that's a hindrance. And there's no experience in and of itself that's good or bad. Sort of in Dharma language, we try to stay away from that, those uh, the, the idea of good or bad, we tend instead to use language of, instead of good, uh, we, we may say wise and skillful. Right? takes the whole value judgment out of it. Right? Instead of bad, we might say unwise and unskillful. Right? So I don't have to say oh, that person was a real jerk because they started yelling at this other person and, you know, they're, they're bad or they're awful. I don't have to do that. I can just say, you know, they're acting unskillfully or unwisely. Who knows what's driving that? Maybe it's coming out of fear or some kind of hurt or insecurity. There's lots of things that drive us. And they drive us when they're unseen, right? Sometimes we don't see what's driving underneath it because we tend to stay on the surface of things. That's so much of what the meditation practice is about, being able, uh, cultivating some degree of stability and quietness and centeredness and concentration to allow us to see more clearly. 
You know, this this meditation is called vipassana meditation. The the vipassana is often translated to see clearly, which is kind of a loose translation of the word, but gets to the meaning. That's what we're trying to do is start to see things that maybe weren't seen clearly or maybe were hidden completely because we were so busy caught up in our lives and up on the surface of things and our minds aren't trained that there's a lot that may really be affecting us and we can start to make them more visible as we settle down. They reveal themselves more and then perhaps we start to get some freedom around them. It's kind of the idea. Some of this repeat. We're sort of the same, the same things over and over. Really, all this dharma is, it's just the same thing to say over and over. Really, the teachings are very simple. It's just like the meditation practice is very simple, right? We, there's a lot more to it than just being with the breath, but we often talk about the way we teach tends to start with working with the breath. There are other people who start in other ways. Well, you know, that's pretty simple. It's not so easy to do. And likewise, all the teachings are simple. They're really um, confoundingly simple. So... Um, yeah. I was just thinking in general about the hindrances, and um, how does one really work on them without beating oneself up? How does one work on the hindrances without beating oneself up? Yeah. Um, well, I might have a few thoughts, and perhaps if other people might want to have some things add. I think that's a big uh, issue for many people um, because we tend to be hard on ourselves, and some of us more than others, but probably all of us to some degree, right? We judge, we compare. It gets into the whole judging mind and the critical mind, and we look at certain aspects of ourselves, and if we don't like it, it is a hindrance, actually, when we are doing that. We're causing suffering, right? So we always know anytime we're suffering, the answer is right there, contained right in that moment, in that experience. None of us want to suffer. Right? That's just a universal truth. It sounds silly to say it, but it's, no, nobody wants to suffer. So as soon as the suffering comes up, we're in reaction. So there might be an experience that comes up we don't like. It might be a physical experience. It might be a a mind state. It might be thoughts or emotions. If we don't like it, we're we're in aversion. So there's the experience we might be in aversion to. And then the suffering that comes around it, we can get an aversion to the the suffering. um, What we don't see is that we create the suffering. We don't create the experience itself. And we don't create it to be pleasant or unpleasant. But our reaction to it or our relationship with it is what creates the suffering. Right? So I'll get in a minute, I'm coming back. I'm sort of winding my way back uh, to what you're thinking. But let's just take the body for a moment, right? So if you're sitting in meditation, and I always use knee pain because many people, if you sit cross-legged, can relate to that. You sit long enough and your back or whatever, something's going to start hurting eventually. Actually, sit in a chair, it doesn't matter what position. Eventually, something's going to start hurting if you don't move. Well, for most of us, it, that would be experienced as unpleasant. Right? It's painful. You don't like it. So, um, and we want to get rid of it. Just part of being a human being. Okay, that's all right so far. But probably there's certain physical experiences that you can be with and you know the difference between unpleasant, but still just being able to be with it and it's okay, it's not that big of a deal. And it's a real different quality to a real aversion kicks in and you're really in this, you've got to get rid of it, push it away, right? 
So if the knee pain gets strong enough, I won't be able to be there. I'm not able to be just free with it. Well, if if uh, whatever it is you're judging, and we could explore that a little. I don't know that you want to get into your personal <laughs> stuff that much, but whatever it is that you're critical about or judging that's arising, you know, are you referring to something in the body? Is it is it your thoughts? Is it your attitudes? Is your, do you mind saying a little about it? You don't have to go into a lot of detail. No, it was, it was just like this pondering the general thought of the hindrances and how, because they're kind of, you know, negatives, negative yeah. characteristics, right. we tend to kind of gra- you know, gravitate a certain degree of negativity towards them, you know, right. well, I do anyway, yeah. and uh, thus maybe perpetuating the hindrance. Slightly. Right, and we don't see when we do that. So if... There is a hindrance. So say, for example, um, you tend to get angry very easily, right? You're a very quick-tempered, hothead type of a person, just as an example. We could pick any example. I just picked that one. Um, There is a certain amount of suffering associated with that, right? And we may not like that, and we may wish that we weren't that way. In addition to whatever difficulties or suffering, I use the word suffering very broadly. I tend to use the suffering for everything. It's like ketchup, you know, you just put on everything. (laughs) (laughs) Suffering. So we can come back to that in a minute. So I just want to say, I just realized I use that word, I tend to use it. For any time, there's even for the mild, if there's a stress, a, a sense of unease or dis-ease, something's out of kilter a little. That's still it's a it's a it's not a strong suffering, but I'm just using that one term for everything. Okay. Any time we're not just free, whatever that means for us. We don't see how we create uh, the problem. So if we're identified with being angry and we don't even see and we're caught in it, that's one level, right? Then we're just at the effect. As we start to um, wake up a little and realize that that's going on, it's still a hindrance that's there. It's still we feel suffering when we get caught in it. Um, But we're starting to get freer because at least we have some awareness In addition to all that, if we get into an um, aversive relationship to the fact that we are quick-tempered or a hothead or anger, then we've created a whole nother aversion and a whole nother layer of suffering. So I'm not sure the answer to how you stop doing that, but we need to find a way to stop doing it. And maybe... um, I think awareness is always the first key. There's something magic that happens when something is when you can shine the light of mindfulness on something. There's sort of a self-releasing quality, I think. Sometimes there was a holding or grasping we didn't see and things kind of let go. Not always, maybe there's deeper patterns in there. I don't know, you know, I don't know the how. Like how does one let go? Yeah, Hugh. It seems to me that in general, when we have difficulties, what we've built up is a pretty large library of stories around this emotion. And um, because whatever the external stimulus is that starts us out on it, we add on to that with a lot of stories about. how that person has always been doing that, or I'm, uh, I'm the kind of person that people like to pick on, or, um, or and, then, and then underneath those stories are generally other hindrances, for example, fear, where anger is, is, a, is, a, is a response to something that's actually driven by fear underneath. And if we can't get down to what's underneath, I'm not going to be able to 
recognize where the anger is coming from. So it's a matter, you alluded to this earlier, it's a matter of really seeing very carefully all of the emotions that are present, yeah. constellated around this kind of experience that catches us. Yeah. And the stories that go with them. Because the stories, they just they pop up so quickly that uh, we almost can't even see them go by. Right. And we get identified with them just like that. And we don't even know that we just believe them and we're living out of them as if they're real and don't realize it's just self created So, uh, um, well, um, well, in a way, it could be a catch-22 on one sense because the way it gets talked about is, is that by getting by dropping deeper, which will that, that's a way we, we we see what's fueling some of those hindrances, and so there's a releasing or a letting go that happens, and so the hindrances aren't arising so much. Flip side of it, it said the hindrances keep us from from going deeper. So the way we work with the hindrances, and this is one of the things we've been talking about some, is knowing when it's time to, first of all, unless we can meet them mindfully, even if we're caught, unless we have any kind of mindfulness, we don't have any freedom or choice at all. Even if we can just get a glimmer to know but once we can get to that, and that's just developed, that's why we do meditation practice or other practices to start to uh, develop our mindfulness and our concentration. But um, then we, ha- we, we have to, then it's the art. When is it time to just to know there's the pain and there's the aversion or there's anger and there's, the, there's an aversion and to actually just bring the mindful awareness to the aversion itself, to the hindrance itself, not trying to get rid of it or diminish it, but just to bring them up. And when is it time to take a different approach, which is to uh, use some tools to actually diminish and get rid of the hindrances? And there are antidotes given to the hindrances, which we talked about earlier. Maybe we'll say them again tonight. Just one moment. I think Steve had something and then, yeah. I'll give my two cents. Yeah. Uh, my opinion is, if you can work with the hindrances, you want to start working with the hindrances, uh, work with them in meditation and forget about working them in your life. Don't even think about it. Because, like with anger, if you're with somebody, it's a very complex situation. When you're sitting, you're in a very, very controlled environment. So if you sit down and you develop leg pain, I mean, you could start to throw all these fantasies, how I got bone cancer, my legs going to fall, and blah, blah, blah. But you know the sitting is X amount of time, and it's going to end soon. So you can, you, can, you can rationalize with yourself that my leg's not going to fall off, and you start working with it. And as, as Richard talks about, you know, there's that line, and if you're on the right part of the line, you, you can do some work with it, and you can start labeling it, you know, like aversion and maybe pretty loud. Or with anger, and anger is interesting when you're sitting because anger can come up about somebody and go into a whole fantasy about a dialogue with them and you think, little reflections, the person isn't here, I'm sitting here on the pillow, that's what's going on. So you can work with it and you can say anger, anger, or, um, and a- after a while you do it long enough, um, it'll come almost automatic, it'll just know it. Like with me, you know, a thought will come by, but that's interesting, doubt. Out. I can feel its presence and it'll go away or another hint will come up and just label it and it's no big deal. And then after you get you know, semi-proficient at that, then you, then you start applying in your life little things. Um, but if you do it right in life, there's, there's so many things going on and it's not a very controlled environment that you can get discouraged very easily. We just say, oh, okay, I messed up, I got angry, you know, but now go back to the pillow and, and practice it. I guess that was the, the bit I was referring to about beating oneself up in an uncontrolled environment. It's yeah, too yeah. easy to, just, to suddenly feel worse. Yeah, that's the, the really nice thing about sitting. When it's a controlled environment, you gotta, you might say you gotta fight on chance. I mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the situation is, is particularly controlled. And, and they emphasize this on retreats, and they say, you know, 
everything is perfectly controlled for you to get the intias up. We provide the food. You don't have to worry about making dinner. You don't have to. And even some retreats don't have yogi jobs. We provide everything for you. All you have to do is just sit there on the cushion, do do your walking meditation, and that's it. Yeah. And actually, what you're pointing to is very important. You know, uh, an analogy that I often use that I really think is a good one is if you had never, I may have said this last week, but if, if you have never, say, done much exercise and then you decide, you know, I'm going to go to the gym and start working out and lifting weights, but if you've never done any, the first time you go in, you're not going to be able to do very much. and You're going to get really sore very easily. You won't be very strong and you're just not going to be able to lift much weight. You haven't developed your muscles. So what would we expect? Of course not. You know, you're not going to go and do 20 pull-ups or whatever, or bench press. But with some time and practice, you know, we, we're not all necessarily going to become an, a world-class bodybuilder, even if we wanted to, but we can certainly all get stronger, get more stamina, right? Well, it's the same thing with the mind. Most of us go through our lives and we don't work on our minds. Our minds are completely out of control. We haven't trained them. So we shouldn't expect necessarily, unless we just happen for some reason to naturally, you know, have certain area that we have some facility with, you know, an ease of being able to work with it. We're not going to be able to work with things either. So we don't start that complex. And actually, getting back to what you're saying, starting in meditation, maybe you want to just take little bits, like when you go to the gym, you start with light weight. So maybe you work with. You don't wait until you're just, you know, in just, you know, your worst anger has come roaring up. It might be too much to work with in that moment. Right? Um, I think he was first then. Oh, and wait a minute. I'm sorry. You were waiting back there. I'm sorry. I have a question for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then I'm not going to experience suffering. So it seems to me that it would actually be, if you want to minimize suffering, then I don't want to even be aware of what I'm doing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I have to say, I have to say there's been a lot of times in my life where, uh, and I've had discussions with people who have been longtime meditators who've just cursed this practice because of the. <laughs> Because I'm actually going to have another piece I want to say, but don't don't get stuck on this one. But seriously, where all of a sudden, you know, you've... Because think about what we're doing in the practice. We're closing our eyes. Some people may sit with their eyes open. It doesn't really matter, but most of us probably sit with our eyes closed. We're developing a certain amount of concentration. And we're taking all of that and turning it directly inward. This is a, 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 a deep journey of, of self-discovery, and we're trying to see what is this mind-body process, you know, what's the nature of my being? We're going all the way down to see what the heck is going on here, really, right? So we shouldn't be surprised then when we're going to start to see, and they use this, this uh, image of, you know, peeling the onion, you peel one layer, and there's another layer there, and you peel it. I don't know what the end is, and so... Um, you're going to see things that are just incredibly wonderful and beautiful and that you didn't even realize. And you're also going to see all the things that you didn't want to know was in there. Uh, do you know uh, the book Everyday Zen by Joko Beck, Charlotte Joko Beck? It's a really nice book I recommend. I think it's still in print called Everyday Zen. And she talks, she has a whole chapter on there called Opening Pandora's Box. And she says, you know, there's a lot of things that's like that closet that we don't ever open. And this is a purification practice. So, you know, when you open it, and if we had all the stuff, things stuffed in there, you open it, you know, kind of like in a movie, someone would open it and just all the stuff comes tumbling out. And so when we start to open it and things start tumbling out, it can feel... That's when we need a lot of, first of all, self-acceptance that, well, that's just what's in there. So you're trying to say the point is not to minimize suffering, but the point is to discover. No. 
But the question is, what's the suffering? So there's several ways of suffering. So, for example, if, I, if I'm not a very aware person, right, and I'm just acting however act, I'm just kind of on automatic pilot through my life, right? That would be what we call not being very aware, right? That doesn't mean that if there's anger and I'm getting in, and it's affecting my relationships with people, that there isn't suffering there. That's, that's suffering, right? We're just going on automatic, just acting out of our habitual, unconscious responses to whatever comes at life. So the, that's not a problem as long as the way that we happen... We, that we happen to be acting or reacting in a moment is a way that's not causing us a problem. The only problem with with being unconscious like that is is that our happiness is then dependent on, our well-being is dependent on which way the winds of life happen to blow. Because we're going to be at a habitual, automatic response. Right? We have no awareness. I'm taking an extreme case. We're just you know, on automatic pilot, going through our life, right? Sounds pretty common. Right, pretty common. So we're just at the effect of everything. And depending on our own conditioning, some things, the result of being at effect of it isn't a big deal because it doesn't get us that much. And for other things, it is. So we're just going to have our ups and downs and we're going to go through life kind of that way. As we start to develop more awareness, two things happen we start to be less on automatic and start to have the, the possibility of choice and freedom in a moment on how we act and react. Okay. So maybe we don't always react in the habitual way that causes us suffering in some way, gets us into trouble. And there's the next piece then that you were talking about is we are going to start to be aware of things then that we weren't aware of that could be unpleasant about ourselves, Right? But that doesn't mean that creates another level of suffering as we start to see these things as the closet or the Pandora's box starts to open. As we start to see more and more, we have to bring right along with it more compassion for ourselves, more self-acceptance. It's getting back to what you're talking about is we have to continually grow and learn to allow ourselves to be. So we're, we're kind of doing two things. We're working hard to cultivate wise and skillful states of the mind and heart and to grow in a way that's leading us towards more freedom and happiness, but not out of aversion to who we are. We also start with a lot of self-acceptance for ourselves. You know, and I, I think a lot of Dharma teachers, but I say this often, that you know it's that balance. If we're out of balance and we just get too much into the self-acceptance, then we stop trying. We just kind of we just go to sleep. This is me. This is my life. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to try because I'm just accepting myself. Well, then maybe we need to rev up the making effort, making progress. If we get too out of balance trying to grow and change and improve ourselves or however you want to say it, we might get into overly striving and we get into, well, I've got to get there and it's not okay to be here. Then maybe we need to get rev up the self-acceptance a little bit. So we kind of work both, self-acceptance and growing. And if they're together, then as we're growing and seeing more, we also have more ability to hold it all in um, with more compassion and without such a struggle. Does that make any? Is that what do you think? Any thoughts about that, or what do you think? I think it makes sense. Okay. Okay. Did you want to say something? You know, I think back to three kids who were pretty young, eight, ten, and twelve, and um, you know, there are a lot of times where I just try to help them sort of unwind the situation. And I think I've gotten better about unwinding my own situation. I can be pretty 
result what we've done for friends at one time or another, but we have a hard time bringing that softness to ourselves. But I think that, yeah. I think that um, if you look at the times you've done it for, for someone else or a good friend that you go to, who's really helped you, that it's real skillful. And it's almost like a no pressure grading that's Right. Yeah. You know, every time we're hard on ourselves, there's an aversion going on. There's something about ourselves that's just not okay to be. So, for example, there are many people, it's quite common that when people start to meditate, and you know, you give them instruction, stay with the breath, and then as soon as you've wandered off and gotten lost as soon as you wake up. You know, you hear this just over and over. As soon as you wake up and realize you've been gone, you come back and you just start again. And it's amazing how common it is for people to just, once they wake up and have been gone, just to beat themselves up mercilessly. Just, I mean, which of course is just creating more thought. (laughs) They're just (laughs) perpetuating the whole thing, but then they come back. Just awful. Some people don't do it so much. Some really do. Rather than just because they can't something, I'm not okay, or I'm not doing it right, or I'm not a good meditator, or just whatever the view is. Instead of just, I was with the breath, then was lost, now was awake, and now come back. We add this whole other layer of our judgments and opinions. And you know, and our minds don't know. You know, our you know, it's our minds are probably the least. And I'm not trying to get a laugh here. I'm, I'm serious. They're probably the least qualified to make these decisions about us. <laughs> you know, because we're not objective. We're so I don't know what it is, but there's just this way where human beings tend to really uh, be rough on ourselves. And the, the opposite of that is there may be people who maybe don't get caught in that, but are uh, more think they're really particularly special or great or anything, which is just the opposite. And we all have mixes of those to different degrees. It's just part of it. And so, you know, we just got to know. We just got that part, those parts in us. Hang on, Hugh. Yeah, I think you're... Yeah. So what would you mean? I just want to explore with you a little because I think your point is something important. When you say if we could get rid of all our layers, specifically, what do you mean? Our reactions to things. Well, that's the whole Dharma. That's the whole thing. And I just wanted to explore with you uh, because because when we getting rid of the layers doesn't mean that we've rearranged the furniture so it's all beautiful now. Like we don't have any whatever you want to say. I'm purposely saying this. We don't have any screwed up parts in ourselves. We don't have any shadow parts. We don't have any difficult parts. There is a... You know, it can be useful. For example, many people find doing some um, therapy kind of work can be very helpful to, to get a knot some of the difficult knots. You know, it can, you know, not everybody, but some people find that that's really useful along with, say, meditation practice. I've found that combination to be useful. But the goal is not to just get all so. There's no wounds. There's no, you know, to get it all. All the I, I say, arrange the furniture properly in the room. The real point is exactly what you're saying. The Buddha, when he was asked um, if he could summarize all his teachings, 
And he said, yeah, he could do it in one sentence. So let me tell you what the sentence is, but then some of you have heard this many times. But but don't react for a second because I want to explain what he's saying. He said, uh, the whole Dharma could be nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. And one who's understood this has understood the whole Dharma, and he goes on to say, and by understanding, and you're just fully liberated or enlightened or whatever word you like to use. So then the question is, what does that mean? Because there's actually a lot contained in there that's pretty terse statement, right? Uh, and what he's saying is, so there's a lot in there. <laughs> but one way to think about what he's saying is, is that what we do with our minds is, is that we contract around things and we try to make things fixed. I know what I am, what you are, what life is, what the world is, and we think it is something. Right? It's just like that uh, that analogy. Did I do this last time or two weeks ago? Some, some of you see me do this, but it bears repeating here. You held this up and I asked the question, what do you see? What do you see? Do you mind answering? What do you see? A bowl. bowl. Yeah. That's what we all see, right? Bowl, bell, I mean... But actually, we don't see a bowl or a bell. I don't see a bowl. <laughs> you know what you see? I know it may say, seem uh, hubristic of me to tell you what you're seeing, but just bear with me for a moment. You see color and shape. You see a bunch of co- different, certain color and shape, light and dark. And in the mind, when you see that, you, you make bowl in the mind. There's just a bunch of colors and shapes coming in. That's all it is. Right? When you hear a sound and you just hear a go by and you hear a motorcycle, you don't hear a motorcycle. There's just we We know that's a motorcycle. There's just the vibration on the eardrum. There's just color and shape. We're totally creating our whole experience of the world. That's what the Buddha means when he said, with our minds we create the world. He was speaking literally, not metaphorically. He's not saying, he's not trying to get into, is there anything really out here? Are you literally creating the ontological reality of this? But we make it into something. Now that's, we don't, normally we wouldn't care about that. It wouldn't even be worth, it's kind of interesting, I guess, to think about. But we don't need to think about it except we're doing it with everything. We're making everything into something. Right? There's me, there's you, you know, who I like, if I don't like, what I like, what I don't, what's okay, what's not, you know, blah, blah. It just goes on and on. It proliferates out. So what the Buddha was saying is, if we don't cling to anything when he says, I and me, when he's saying the mind, the I and me is referring internal, the mind is external. So everything that comes to us in the senses, through the eyes, the ears, touch, we're not going to stop making it into something where we couldn't function. Like the only way I can get up, I'm using even the word I, so it's getting a little tricky, but the only way I can get up and walk out the door is I've got to know that there's a floor. It can't, you know, you there are people who have brain injuries who lose the ability to do this. Right? They can't function. They can't put it together. This, this is the when, the when they speak of perception, uh, this is what they mean by the word perception in the Buddhist terminology. So we need to see that we do that, but when we stop clinging to anything, another way to say this: we let things be. We're able to be with things. We don't have to make everything. It doesn't mean we stop trying to improve the world, that we stop trying to, you know, if there's somebody suffering, we don't let them be. We want to help. But it doesn't come out of that contracted state in that letting go and being in harmony with life as it is and letting it unfold in its own way. The natural, innate compassion blossoms forth, and so you cannot help but act in a way that would be in the best interest, that's the most appropriate in any situation to relieve suffering. It's just natural. So that's what he means about not clinging to the mind, anything. Doesn't, you don't have to pull away or go live in a cave. We just don't 
contract it into something. We just relax and let it let it unfold. The same thing for the I or me. We do the same thing inside ourselves. We can't let ourselves be. We have these fixed notions of who and what we are. When we start to loosen more around those fixed ideas, then we just let ourselves be what we are. We don't have to make it into anything. We can just be what we are. It just cuts the legs right out from under all of the judgment, all of the suffering, all of the parts of this that aren't okay, and it's getting right to what you're talking about of we, the reactive mind has been um, kind of diffused. And we're able to really rest so the heart and mind can be quite free in the midst of life as it is, and so we're just really in that harmony with life. Does that make any sense? I'm kind of... Right? So that's the whole Dharma teaching that you're talking about. But here's the here's the catch. If, so if you think that sound, you may or may not like that, but that's kind of my take on one way to talk about the whole Dharma teachings. So if you said, okay, well that sounds good to me, I'll sign up for that. So I'm just going to not cling. Well, you won't be able to do it because until we've gotten free of the conditioning we tend to get hooked. So that's why we start paying attention then to these areas like the hindrances. Starting to work just on the levels where we can work, just like Steve's talking about, and just, you know, and, and then our ability grows and grows and grows naturally. That's the whole thing. Yeah, the word how is a tricky word. I mean, we, we give practices that we do, but how, it act, how we actually do it, I don't know. I don't know how we do anything. I mean, literally, I don't know how I pick up this ringer. What's going on there? You don't even really, I mean, this is getting off a little bit, but um, you don't even know how you're, how do you move your arm? Right. It just right. Yeah. So I think what we do is, but it's, so I think what we do is we just, you know, the times when we get caught, we're caught. And the Buddha kept pointing back to the mindfulness as kind of this little wedge we can get in between and make a little crack. And it's just what you're saying by bringing the mindfulness awareness to something. Somehow it seems to. Isn't that true? It just seems to... Well, it's also conditions. You, you, you can do like... A... Okay, well, that's... No, you know, I have a computer game at home, and sometimes I get very frustrated when I don't win. Right. And it agitates my mind and makes me restless. Right. So one way of not making the mind restless is you don't put yourself in situations. Right. Then do it, you know. Yeah. Uh, the sloth and talker, um, talking about the, the basic sloth talk, which is really tired. You may not be getting enough sleep. You get right. more sleep at night. Um, so maybe what we should do is go back, because we talked about it briefly in the first week, about actually some of the specific tools. Maybe we'll do that in a minute. But first, you had a question or a comment. Yeah, I think you just explain a little bit more about restlessness. Okay. Well, we haven't gotten to that one yet. We haven't done that one yet. Oh, we haven't done But we're going to, we'll, we'll do, oh, man. Okay. Okay, let, let's just say this real quick. And then we'll say something about restlessness. Um, going back to the desire, the greed, the clinging, we always know for all of these when we can, there's the mindful awareness. And if we can work with them and bring awareness, that might be enough. Sometimes we need an antidote. The traditional antidote, when we're really grasping and clinging on, there's two antidotes. Uh, one is to contemplate impermanence. And actually consciously, you know, if we're really desiring, just to know that, you know, it's not nothing lasts and eventually you lose everything. And the second thing is, um, depending on the object, so if it's the object, uh, say, if it happens to be, say, another person is the desire, 
then there's a whole group of uh, practices about the um, foulness of the human body that you could, <laughs> we don't do them here, in Asia they're kind of big, but uh, that you could take on that could help you. Now, if you're just in a nice relationship with someone, you, it may not be useful to use that practice on the foulness of the human body, but there can be times when it could be useful. So it's just finding ways to help, you know, cut the, the contraction around it. Uh, yes? Yeah, when, when a hindrance becomes a problem or when you're beating yourself up or when you're struggling with a problem, you're... That's when you're on, you're stuck on your ground, and um, like you were saying, your mind is the last thing that's going to be able to deal with that because your mind is working with that within the framework, you know. So we, you want to think outside the box, but it's not really thinking outside the box so much as getting back into your being. And so one technique that's extremely valuable is to drop out of your head and drop into your heart-mind center and just be with what's there with the greatest clarity that you can. And as far as you keep mentioning that that helps to diffuse, well, specifically, there is an energy there that when you are with that with clarity, that is diffused. Yeah, right. No, thank you, and um, I think that's right. And then, of course, the only time we use these antidote to try and diminish them is if it's too difficult and we're not able to do that, then we may need to diminish them down. But if, they, if, if we can work with them, that's that mindful mindful awareness. Right. right. Yeah. What I'm saying is that instead of thinking right. about it, you actually focus your attention on this area yeah. of your body, the, the heart and solar yeah. plexus, and just are with that energy. And that is the technique. It's not, it's, your mind can't right. grab with that, and it takes you right out of the problem. Yeah. And, and then the energy is diffused at the same time. Right. And actually, that's real important. You're pointing to something real important that um, when, at least the way I'm talking, and I think many people talk about mindful awareness, it's not necessarily meant to be something that is in the head. And I think we often get caught that way, and we miss exactly what you're talking about. So, for example, when I talk to people, simple example is giving meditation instructions. Sometimes people use language like watch the breath, for example, which to me has kind of a, a sense or a connotation of being in the head and you're kind of disconnected from it and watching it. And I tend to use language more like connecting with it or experiencing it. And it's actually bringing that awareness right into that breath, just like you're talking about, and to really be in it and experience it almost within, in a way, is really kind of what you're talking about. So, and then um, we're going to bump up against the clock here, but uh, let me just say also there is an antidote also for the aversion. If you can work with the aversion like you were talking about, that's the way to go. But sometimes also we, have, we may need to work with an antidote, and the antidote for the aversion is loving kindness, to actually actively generate loving kindness towards the person or the thing or the experience towards that knee pain or that person or whatever, towards the judging mind or whatever it is. That's the, the antidote. Um, yes? Are you a hypocrite when you try to show love when you have hate? No. It's okay to fake it, really. Just fake it. Yeah. Expand on that. Well, um, look, so here's an example. Let's not go, first of all, it always starts with self-acceptance. See, we're starting with the place. That's just the mantra. We want to we meet all of our experience with mindful awareness and with compassion. Mindful awareness and compassion. That's all you got to remember. Bring both of those, mindful awareness and compassion to whatever's going on. So if there's a mind of hate, the Buddha in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the one of the most important discourses on uh, uh, mindfulness practice says, when a mind of hate arises, no, there's a mind of hate. That's the whole instruction in that sutta. In that particular place, there's nothing else there. He's not saying, get rid of it or do an antidote. So it always starts with self-acceptance. So, um, 
what I mean about faking it is, is so I just said it that way. But what? what <laughs> so, for example, we're going to end tonight with just a few minutes of loving kindness practice. We do a little practice. It's just kind of what we do traditionally, right? And there's these little practices you can do. It's not so important that you feel loving kindness. It's about the the, uh, the power of directing the mind. Once again, it's that conditioning of the mind. So as we start to incline the mind in a certain direction, and we're just cultivating, we're planting seeds. And when the conditions are ripe, they'll sprout. But you've got to plant the seeds. We're just planting seeds, planting seeds. We're just inclining the mind. We're not faking. We're not trying to have hate and pretend like we're loving what we're doing is, we, if we have a difficulty and hate is so big, we wouldn't want to start with that anyway. Maybe that's too much. Maybe we just need to, maybe we'll do, when that comes up, maybe the most we can do is say, well, maybe someday I might be able to have loving kindness for that, but I can't now, and I just need to accept that in myself. Maybe that's the most we can do. I don't know. So we just start easy. We start developing loving kindness with, with um, maybe with someone that we really have a lot of positive feelings for, and we work on that. And then we move over to someone neutral. And then we move to someone who's just a minor annoyance. And then we move to someone... And you do this over, not even in one meditation, maybe over months or years or a lifetime. So it's never about being a hypocrite. It always starts with self-acceptance. And if we can't accept something then we have to look at what's keeping us from accepting this, and then we have to have some acceptance for that. We move out to that. If I can't accept that, what's keeping me from accepting that? And we need to find some acceptance for that. And we keep moving out until hopefully we can find some place that we can accept. And maybe the best we can accept is, well, at least I'm trying. And then we'll have some acceptance for that. And that's, you know... Because there's no judgment about any of this. We all have places that we naturally are pretty free and don't get caught. And we all have places where we just don't do it very well and it just gets us. Everybody's like that. Okay. All right. So next week, we really got to do restlessness, <laughs> sloth and torpor, and doubt. But I think the restlessness and sloth and torpor will be quick. Because it's really the main problem with those is actually the aversion uh, much more than the restlessness of the sloth and torpor itself. Yeah. Yes, that is humorous.
So you don't actually rip the hose off, just for your information. You don't actually rip the hose off the uh, thing and gas doesn't pour out or anything, but it, um, there is kind of a, a, a joint that gives first. And so we were talking about this and I was, you know, really apologizing because I was so embarrassed that I had done this. And he said, well, you know, this happens. <laughs> This happens quite a bit. I said, well, this is my first time. And, and, <laughs> and I, I, uh, I got here. And, you know, so it was, it was like a whole set of feelings that went on. One, I was like, well, thank goodness I didn't burn up my car. Um, I was a little embarrassed that I ended up ripping the hose off the thing. But then I thought, wasn't that ingenious that they had this little valve? And, you know, this whole thing is, you know, rigged so that if people drive off, they don't really guess yeah. and fork out of it. Because they know. And, and um, sort of humorous, I was rather amused with myself, just in, you know, that I was actually going probably someplace I needed to go <laughs> because um, I probably need to be a little more mindful. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, somewhat forgiving in that I only got 10 feet before I really figured it out. I could have drove all the way here and had this nozzle. Uh, <laughs> people laughing at me And also, also uh, you couldn't have done it any better. It wasn't possible. You couldn't have remembered to do it because you didn't remember. You were just gone, and when you're gone, you were just on automatic, and it just happened that you didn't create that much of a disaster. That's the whole idea. When we're not mindful, we're not, and when we are, we have some. Yeah. So I was, okay. I was sitting here being rather amused with myself, okay. and um, <laughs> the situation. Okay. So um, we need to end, and so. Um, We'll just end with a very short metta practice. If, if you're new and don't know the word metta, it's just this Pali word that means uh, we translate it as loving kindness. Just having uh, good good wishes, good will, loving kindness. Um, so um, please um, find a, a position to sit in that's as comfortable as, as you can Allow as your body will let you be. Um, and I'd invite you, if you have, if this last, while we've been here, if, if you have been in your head and not connected into the body or into your feelings or your experience, to reconnect back in with the breath, with the body, any feelings, sensations in the body, You may or may not have thoughts or emotions or feelings and just connect with that. So the whole experience of your being in this moment. And to notice your relationship with whatever the experience is. If you're able just to allow... As we were saying earlier, just allow the full, that, that free expression of ourselves, just allow us to be, not having to do anything or fix it. And also very important that if there is something that you are not able to be to allow or to accept. Very important to have some acceptance for that. And then you can just rest, if you'd like, in that uh, mindful awareness and that acceptance. Or you could now actively start to incline the mind towards actively sending some of these good wishes to yourself.
And if you've never done this practice, we just always give these very, very simple phrases that you can say to yourself. And of course, you could make up your own. But it's just a wish or a prayer, if you will. And there's this standard set of phrases. May I be happy. And just repeating that. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be free from inner and outer harm. May I be free from suffering. And then um, you could stay with that, or if you'd like, you can extend your awareness out to all the other people here in the meditation hall and send out that same metta. May everyone here be happy. And may everyone here be free from suffering. As you're doing this practice, it's always in the full awareness and acknowledgement and acceptance of whatever your experience is, even if it's anger. And then just inclining the mind towards this wish, this good wish towards others. And then finally, uh, allowing your awareness to extend out, um, out into the community, into the world, and uh, spreading this metta to all beings everywhere. And traditionally, there's this extensive list. We send it to beings near to us and far away, known to us and unknown, seen and unseen. So wishing just as I wish to be happy, may all beings everywhere be happy. And just as I wish to be happy, may all beings everywhere, just as I wish to be free from suffering, may all beings everywhere be free. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none... through through anger or ill will, wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings 